I'm going to mute you all. I'm sorry. Not that I don't want to hear from you. I just don't want to hear from you right now. I will unmute it at the end. Okay. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I am literally tingling with excitement. We've got so much information to share today. You Really, just so much. So strap in. Okay. Strap in. And we are going to be, if you are uncomfortable exceeding the speed limit, then, then you best get off the bus right now because <laughs> this bus is going to take off and we're going to be moving. Uh, I pray to Hashem that Hashem should make me not detour too much today with my ADHD detour so we can get everything covered today that I want to cover. I also want to thank you all amazing, amazing people for being here, for coming on these Zooms every single week, for just being awesome in general. And, uh, and thank you so much throughout this pandemic which is, I think, now seven years long. You guys have been awesome the entire time. I want to thank the amazing folk over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for setting up these Lunch and Learns back when they were Lunch and Learns, and now whatever they are, they're Zoom and Learns, whatever you want to call them. And uh, I want to thank them for, for really giving us this opportunity to learn together for so long. And, of course, I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It is an app. It is a website. And it is filled filled with incredible Torah knowledge um, that you can download and you can listen to. I also want to mention that uh, due to the incredible hard work of my wonderful brother, Rabbi Ozzy Burnham, I am now also uh, findable. You can find me on, on any kind of podcast platform, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts under the name Burnham on the Parsha. Okay. My recommendation, by the way, is if you listen to me, I, I, it sounds crazy, but listen to me at one and a half speed. Okay. Because this way we'll just get covered the same. You'll get the same amount of information. You'll just get it faster. I, I know I speak a little bit fast sometimes, but give it a shot. Okay. It's little, it makes it more exciting, more bang for your buck. Okay. All righty. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get started. Let's make a bracha first. We always got to start with a blessing. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu malach haolam sha'akol I know certain classes you don't got to listen to me one and a half speed. I think this class will be one of those. We're going to move. We're going to move right now. Yes, I have um, a, an extra dose of speed in me right now. So let's go. Boom. This week's Parsha, Achrei Mos Kedoshim. Two really, really important Parshas. And we read them together most years of the, um, the, 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 the Torah reading uh, cycle. And we're going to talk hopefully about three concepts today. There is, let's go, let's, go, let's go with the first, agriculture for 200. Okay. There is a Pasuk in this week's Parsha. It is uh, chapter 19, Pasuk, I want to say 21, but I'm not even sure. Let's look it up. Here we go. Parshas uh, Kedoshim, Kedoshim. Here we go. Here we go, 23. Leviticus 1923, and when you will come to the land that I will give you, the land of Israel, the Holy Land, and you will plant any tree for food. You shall regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years, it shall be forbidden not to be eaten. Okay, for three full years, it is not to be eaten. That does, not, that, that, that does not mean not to be eaten by you, but to be eaten by other people, right? That's the like the mitzvah of Shemitah, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. There's a mitzvah of Shemitah, which says during a certain year, you can't take control of your field and deny access to other people. Anybody, anybody who wants the poor of your land can come in and, take, and walk into your field and take your produce. So during the Shemitah year, you lose ownership over your crops, but you still maintain those crops are going to be eaten. They're going to be used. As a matter of fact, there's a whole thing called uh, where Oats are Bezdin, where if Bezdin sees that a crop is going to die out on the field, there's ways that they can come in and make sure it gets harvested and brought to the cities where people are going to be able to enjoy it because we don't want food to go to waste, do we? No, we definitely don't want feed to go to waste, do we? No, we definitely don't want food to go to waste, do we? Right? You've heard that from your mother. People are starving in Africa, right? So why would you leave over the crust from your peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? So uh, the answer over here, so, so when it comes to Shemitah, it's not yours. The, the crops that grow in your land are not yours. However, they do belong to the people. The people could come in and eat them. But that's not the case when it comes to Arla. 
the first three years of a tree's life. Now, again, the first year, year and a half, it, it ain't bringing out so much great size produce anyway. It's not that prodigious anyway. But by the third year, we're producing a pretty hefty amount of fruit. And yet it is verboten. Areltem es arlaso, forbidden, right? Asur le'echol. It is forbidden to be eaten by who? By everybody. What happens to the fruits of a tree that are the third year, which is already a semi-mature tree? And you've got all these apples or all these beautiful oranges or mangoes. You know what happens to them? We let them fall to the ground and they rot and decay and are gone forevermore. Nobody ever gets any benefit out of them. What is the sense in this mitzvah? I don't understand. Why are we doing this? Let's continue on a little bit. In the fourth year, all the fruit shall be set aside as jubilation for the Lord. What does jubilation for the Lord mean? It means take the fruit, go up to Jerusalem, and eat the fruit in Jerusalem. And if you can't get there, right, because it's too far and your grapes are going to spoil in the process, then you could redeem it onto money. You take the money and you bring it up to Jerusalem and you sit there and you buy food with it and you you party in Jerusalem and you have a good time. And you, I don't mean party isn't like wild, crazy, reckless party. I mean like party, like holy party, right? Like we do all the time over here with our lunch and learns. It's holy partying, right? It's kishmak. It's awesome. We, we, we check in. We have a good time. It's beautiful. Holy good partying. Wholesome. Good. Okay, so the first three years, you let everything rot. The fourth year, you got to bring it up to Jerusalem and eat it in Jerusalem. And then the fifth year, you can have it for yourself. So asks Rav Moshe Feinstein of blessed memory, right? What is the scoop? What's going on over here? That We have a rule that the Torah is not into wastefulness, right? There's actually a, there's a debate whether it's a Doraisa or Darabanan, whether it's a biblical commandment or a rabbinical commandment, but it's definitely, we, we have something called Baal which means you're not supposed to destroy. You're not supposed to destroy things that are good, right? It comes from the, the book of Deuteronomy. The Deuteronomy is the book where Moses is preparing the Jewish people for going into battle, and he gives them the game plan for how you go to war. Now, in those days, often people lived in cities with big walls. Today, of course, there's no cities with big walls because we have something called missiles, right? Or mortars or, you know, so we don't have any value really in walls much anymore. But in the olden times, many cities like Jerusalem, like Tveria, used to have walls all around it, Yericho. And some of them were almost impregnable, like, like the walls of Yericho. Of course, God miraculously brought them down and they crumbled into the ground. But other than that, you had cities out of these massive walls and were very, very hard to attack, right? So in the olden days, you used to build siege equipment. Siege equipment included towers that you could use to get, they're like protected towers that you can get up and shoot at the people over the wall. There were battering rams, there were onagers, there were trebuchets, there were all forms of catapults, right, that were made throughout the years where you would hopefully, uh, not hopefully, well, if you, well, I guess if you were war, hopefully for you, you'd be sending flaming catapult balls over the ramparts, right? Um, and that was the way you went to war. So you needed a lot of uh, wood for your siege equipment, says the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. When you will besiege a city for a long time to wage war against it, to capture it, you shall not cut down its trees, to wield an axe against the trees. Don't cut down the trees. Why? Because you got to eat from that. That's a fruit tree. That's providing food for you. But also, and you shall not cut it down. Are the trees of the field humans that you're laying siege against? No. So therefore, don't cut it down. Now, mind you, this refers specifically to fruit trees. If it was a non-fruit tree, you are allowed to cut it down. Because it says specifically, from it you shall eat and you shall not cut down. Hence, you're allowed to cut down trees. The Torah recognizes that when you go to war, you're going to have to cut down trees from time to time. But why cut down the apple tree when you can cut down the oak? Why cut down the, the, the citrus, the oranges, the mandarins, the clementines, the nectarines, the plums, when you can just cut down the 
oak tree or the other non-fruit-bearing trees, the pine tree and so on and so forth. So that is a mitzvah in the Torah. And Chazal say, from here we learn this, this, this law called Baal Tashchis. Here, the, the Torah continues, Rak If there's a tree that you know, this is not a fruit-bearing tree, also Tashchis v'karasa, that you can cut down and construct. Then you can construct your various siege works against the city that is waging war against you until that city has been reduced. So what do we see here? You're allowed to cut down trees. You're not allowed to cut down fruit trees. Why? What did that fruit tree ever do to you? Allow it to provide you meals. That's what it wants to do. It wants to give you sustenance and has taken care of you and humanity for so long. Leave it be. Don't cut down the date tree. Don't cut down the pomegranate. Don't cut down the olive tree and so on and so forth. So from here, we have a law in the Torah called Baal Tashchis. You shall not waste. And again, it's a dispute in the Gemara if that's a biblical prohibition or a rabbinical prohibition. But undoubtedly, the Torah, whether it's actually a physical, like biblical prohibition or not, the Torah is clearly anti-wasting. The Gemara goes so far. There's actually a fascinating Gemara where the Gemara talks about like leaving certain kinds of lamps open when they, they burn faster. They don't really get you that much more light and they burn faster when they're open to the air. And they says, that's an example of Baal right? That's wasting fuel. So you sit. Sometimes people let their cars idle for super long when there's really no purpose. They just get to their destination and they got home and they don't want to get out of their car yet, which is fine. Sometimes a person needs a little car time. I need car time all the time. You know, you've had a long day, you've had a stressful day. Once you get into the house, now it's family time and you got to be ready for the family, whatever they got to get, whatever they need from you and to be able to be a father and be a, a mother, whatever it is. So sometimes when I pull up, I just hang out in my car. Now, the funny thing is if my, my speakers are on, you could hear it like word, even if I'm having a conversation with somebody, they could hear word for word, whatever I'm, whatever they're saying back to me, my speakers, I don't know, they're loud enough that you can hear every word or there's like some sort of uh, sound engineering situation going on where if I've got music, if I'm listening to a podcast or a class, from TorahAnytime.com, that's right, um, or anything else, they can hear me listening to whatever I'm listening to or talking to people. So I usually, I'll shut off my car, but even if I wasn't gonna do that, meaning sometimes you just get to your house, you're not ready to go in yet. You've got a lot to process, a lot of decompression you needed. You had a tough day at the office. You just wanna sit in your car and listen to music for 10 minutes, which is 100% kosher and probably recommended if you had a tough day. Don't go right from your tough day right into your house. Take a break, sit in your car, listen to music for as long as you need, and then go into your house renewed, reinvigorated, and ready to go, right? But while you're sitting in your car, don't leave the engine running. There's no purpose in that. And if it's freezing cold outside, you need to keep the heat on. Okay, fine. If it's boiling hot outside, you need to keep the air conditioning. Okay, fine. But if it's not, just leaving the car running, that's baltashkas. The Gemara literally gives us examples there was like naphtha lamps and there was oil lamps and some burned faster when they were open and some burned faster when they were closed. And it literally says in the Gemara, if you use up fuel unnecessarily, it's baltashkas. Okay, now let's go back to Rav Moshe Feinstein. Rav Moshe Feinstein says, so wait a second. So why, why is the Torah telling us to let the fruit of the tree just fall to the ground and rot? No one's getting benefit out of it. Isn't that ultimate baltashkas? Isn't that total wasting? Now, fascinatingly, Rafeinstein says, no, you never lose by doing a mitzvah. We have a concept, shluche mitzvah inim nizakim. And for sure, that's if you're a, a messenger to go do a mitzvah, which is why when people go to Israel, often people give them a dollar and say, here, can you please give us to charity? Right? So this way, when they're on the way to Israel, they're going to give charity. So they are a excuse me, a shliach mitzvah, they're going a messenger, a messenger to go do a mitzvah. And uh, therefore, they should have special protection. But we also, we have a concept that shluch and mitzvah don't get hurt. And for sure, a person who's in the middle of doing a mitzvah is not going to be hurt by the mitzvah. So when you leave behind the food on the ground for three years, you're not going to, it's not going to cause waste. As a matter of fact, if you look at the third verse, I didn't read that to you yet. So we said in the third, first three years, you got to just let it be, let it sit and rot. In the fourth year, you bring it to Jerusalem. However, continues the Pasuk in Leviticus 19.25, Paragutes, Pasuk Chav, in the fifth year, you can eat the fruit. So you can finally eat your tree. You, you planted it for three years, no one could eat it. It had to sit and rot. 
On the fourth year, you had to bring it to Jerusalem. And by the time you got there, you had probably already redeemed it because it was spoilage and all that. So you haven't yet eaten from your from your, from your tree. Finally, in the fifth year, you could eat it. Continues the pasuk, La Hosef Lachem Tuaso Ani Hashem Elokechem, that its yield will be increased. I am the Lord your God. Says the Lord your God, you do this mitzvah for me. You don't eat from it for the first three years, and then the fourth year you treat it as holy. I will make sure that the yield of this tree is prodigious. I will make sure, sure if a normal apple tree in the rest of the world produces 300 apples a year, your tree is going to produce 400 apples a year. And you know for how long? Not for one year, not for two years, for 30, 40, 50 years. Make, do the math, right? If the, if the tree is producing 100 extra apples a year for the next 50 years, right? That is... 50,000 extra apples. So the fact that on the third year, the first set two years, the yield was almost nothing. The third year, maybe the yield was a, a 200 apple year. The fourth year, you, you were able to eat it. You had to eat it in holiness. That was maybe already up to 300. But now, so, okay, you're going to say, what was the waste? The waste was 300, 300 apples, 400 apples. What's the benefit though? Hashem says, you do this. I promise you, I will make this tree just rock. This tree will be a super tree. It's going to just push out product like you've never seen before, and you're going to have 50,000 extra apples. So is that wasting or is that gaining? But hold on a second. Hold on a second. And by the way, Rabbi Akiva points this out. Rashi on the location brings out this idea. The Torah says, in order to increase its yield, says Rashi, this mitzvah you will keep, it will end up resulting in you having way more produce. In the merit that you kept the mitzvah of Arla and Netaravai, the three years, and then the fourth year, I will bless this tree. Now, who could give a better blessing than have the God himself, right? You know, today people go to Eretz Yisrael, they go to Israel, they try to get blessings from this rabbi and blessings from that rabbi. People wait on out for hours to get blessings from rabbis, right? Hashem says, guess who's going to bless this tree? I'm going to bless this tree. Ani Hashem Elokeichem. I am Hashem your God. There's no better skula, there's no better auspicious thing to do than for God to bless the handiwork of your hands, right? Hayyar Rabbi Kiva, Omer Rabbi Kiva used to say, the Torah responded to the Yetzirah. The Torah knew that your Yetzirah was going to say, no, 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 no. Don't give all this charity. Don't let it be for three years. It's too wasteful. Just take it home and eat it, says the Yetzirah. That's what he's trying to convince you to do. Comes along with says, no. Don't say that for four years. I get nothing out of it. So therefore, Hashem says, you spend these four years sitting out, and I will make sure that this tree is amazing. But you like college. You go to four years of college, right? You're not making money. You can go to work in Walmart, right? You can get right out of high school. You can get a job, right? Working anywhere. There's so many places. Today, everyone's hiring. Today, everyone's hiring. I don't know if you know this, but it is a crisis in the, in the, in the country right now. People simply cannot hire workers because... Many, many people are being paid more to stay home and people are just not going to work. It's been, it's, it's in, there's a lot of money sloshing around the system because of stimulus and all that. It, ask anybody who employs people. It is impossible to find workers today, right? So people, so if you want to get a job, you don't, gotta, you don't have to go to college. Nah, go to college. Right out of high school, get a job. There's a million places. You can get it at Jimmy John's. You can get it at Walmart. You can get it at Target. You can get it at Kohl's. Right? You can get it at DoorDash. You can get it. You so many jobs that you can get. Why go to college for four years? The answer is, okay, for four years, you hold back from making money, but then you make more money for the rest of your life. So same thing. Hashem says, okay, the first three years, you make nothing out of your fruit tree. The fourth year, you bring it up to Jerusalem. But then for the next 50 years, the earning power of this tree is more because I gave it bracha. I, Hashem, gave it bracha. Therefore, it's worth it to make that investment for four years of non-earning in order to get the premium that this tree will produce forever and ever. So far, so good, guys. Just shake your head yes if you if you agree so far. All righty, don't. No, 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 no. Not good, not good. Hold on a second. I get it that God wants you to say that you are going to hold off for four years in order to get the premium. But why does it have to rot? Why can't God say, you know what? For the first four years of this tree, Whatever comes off of it, whatever fruit comes off of it, you give to the poor, right? Does that, doesn't that make more sense? 
300, 400, you know, apples, 500 apples, whatever it is, why let them rot at the bottom of the tree? Why doesn't the Torah say for the first four years, give it to the poor. And then after that, I will bless it. I'll give you the premium. I'll make your tree a super tree, right? Doesn't that make more sense? Why the wastefulness? Are you guys with me? Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you for being with me. Here's a wild idea. Here's a wild idea. Let's imagine for the first four years, there's 500 fruit. And you have to give it out to the poor. So what do you do? You put it up a side. Forget about the Shemitah year. We're not talking about Shemitah. Shemitah is, an, is a side character, meaning the first three years, you can't eat the fruit no matter what, even if it's even if it's Shemitah or not Shemitah, whatever it is, right? I'm talking about before, outside of Shemitah. Shemitah, of course, you, you don't have ownership over the, over the field anyway. If you get to give away those produce for the first four, three years, and you end up giving away, I don't know, 600 apples, whatever it is, 500 apples, right? You feel like a good man. You feel like, yeah, it's my tree. I'm giving out because I'm a, I'm a good guy. I'm giving my charity. I'm a good guy. Look at me. <laughs> you know how much charity I gave last year? I planted an orchard. I planted 100 apple trees. Okay, 100 apple trees means that over the next four years, I'm going to be giving away 50,000 apples to the poor people. You know what? I'm a, <laughs> I call myself a, some people call me a farmer. I call myself a philanthropist. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, I, I don't do it for me. I do it for the community. You know, I'm just, I'm just that kind of guy. My father always taught me to be kind and generous and humble, and I'm just following through. When you get to give out all those fruits, you feel like the boss man. You know what I'm saying? What's up? What's up? Yeah, of course you're giving it out to charity, but like, it feels really good. And you feel like this is my tree and I get to decide I'm giving the charity, yada, yada, yada. But if you can't touch it and you have to watch that fruit just rot on the ground, which is just, mm, it's eyeball burning difficult to watch hundreds. You, you planted an apple orchard with a hundred trees and you're watching 50,000 apples just rot on the ground. And that is difficult. That's challenging to do. It's like, oh, I can't, mm, it's killing me, man. I don't want, and then you're saying, why are we doing this? Oh, right. Because guess what? Those trees, they're not even mine. They're God's. Think about a farmer making an apple orchard. What does the farmer do? You planted a hundred trees. What do you do? You took a hundred seeds and you put them in the ground. <laughs> Whoa, you're amazing. Wow, did you really do that? You put a hundred seeds in the ground. You spent an afternoon. I one time did an agricultural product project. We were planting also, you know, it was like one of these things in Israel or whatever, in America, they do them. You can go and you can, you know, you'd be part of the plant, you know, let's live agrarian, you know? So we went out and we were planting and I planted well over a hundred seeds in probably two hours, you know? So what does the farmer do? He plants a hundred seeds. Okay, he clears the ground, makes it soft, puts some water on, walks away. Then God for the next three years is watering it right? God built a tree. What were your, think about how crazy this is, guys. What were the, what were the raw ingredients in your tree that you've got now? You've got this big apple tree that's producing 300, 400 apples a year. What were the ingredients that you put in there, Mr. Farmer Man? You put in one seed and a little bit of ground. Now, by the way, the ground is still all there. Mind you, the ground is still, here's the craziness, guys. You put one seed into, let's say, 3,000 pounds of ground. Then the tree grows and there's still about 3,000 pounds of ground there, right? Especially because the tree keeps letting its leaves go down when it comes fall time and they, they go into the ground and they add. So like there's still 3,000 pounds of ground. You still have your ground and yet your little, your little seed that you put in the ground is now a 600 pound tree with 300 apples on it. That's your tree? That's your tree? What did you do, man? You did nothing. God did it all with the sunlight and the chlorophyll. And it's just, it's just wild. My son, my daughter was walking me to school to, to show one shot this morning. She says, Daddy, what do trees eat? I said, they eat sunlight. She's like, what do you mean, Daddy? No, really, really, what do they eat? I'm like, no, really, really, they eat sunlight. So at the end of the day, who's putting in 90% of the work? And granted, Cherno's saying over here, we shouldn't denigrate the farmer. I'm not denigrating the farmer, God forbid. Thank God we have farmers who are willing to go out there in the hot sun and plant trees and all that. But let's recognize 
Who's doing all the work? So like this, if the farmer feels like I'm the man, this is my tree and I'm so kind and generous, then one year, it's not a good year. You know, maybe it's a bad, it wasn't such a good crop and he needs more, you know, uh, he needs a little bit more income that year. One of his kids is getting married. So instead of giving the proper tithes, instead of giving his proper tzedakah, it's like, yeah, this year I'm not going to do it. You know, usually I'm such a generous guy. This year is a bad year for me. I'm not going to do it. That's if you think it's your tree. But if you recognize that it's God's tree, then every time you're, you're, you're paying your tithes in and when you're giving your charity, you're, it's like you're paying your payments on your lease of your car. If you don't make your payments, they're going to repo your car. It doesn't belong to you. It will be repossessed by the bank because the bank owns the note on it. Hashem says, I don't, it's not enough that you give charity and then walk around thinking, this is my tree and I give the charity. God says, I want you to know it's my tree. I made that tree. I made the wood. I made the leaves, right? I make the apples. I mean, think of how crazy it is. You have wood and then out of the wood boop, comes an apple. How crazy is that? It's just so amazing. The miracles of an apple tree. You have pieces of wood and those pieces of wood give birth to apples, which are not wood at all. <laughs> it's just so nuts. It's so miraculous. So Hashem says like this, when you sit and watch 50,000 apples rot on the field, it is infuriating to you, but it reminds you this don't belong to me. If it belonged to me, I would give it to charity, but it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. And this way you're going to be charitable with the fruits of that tree for the next 50 years in a way that you wouldn't be if you thought it's all you. Again, if, you, if, if God had said, give it to the poor, then even so, you would still walk around saying, it's mine, I give it to the poor, I'm a nice guy. Then one year you don't have so much money. Okay, it's mine. I'm not going to give it to the poor this year because I'm, I'm a little short squeezed. God says, no, I want you from the very beginning of this tree to recognize who owns this tree? God. Okay? And therefore, if you make your payments on the tree, right, You'll have plenty to get from the tree, but don't ever lose track and think this is my tree. So God has to hammer that home by the very challenging and difficult thing of a farmer watching fruit just literally burn on the fields. But it's worth it because of the humility that it gives the farmer. And the only way that would happen is not if he can give it out to other people where he still gets to feel like I'm the best thing since sliced bread, but if you literally watch it burning in the field. So Hashem says, I'm going to make an investment. This tree is going to be around for 70, 80 years, whatever it is. Yes, the first couple of years, maybe 500 apples are going to end up burning on the ground. But that's an investment I want to make. So this farmer for the next 40, 50 years will be super generous because he understands every time this tree is just a total miracle that God gave me. And it's amazing. Okay, so that is idea number one and how important it is for us in our businesses today. How important it is us for us in our livelihood today. It's very hard today. We're not farmers. We don't rely on the rain. You know, a farmer relies on rain. So it's a lot easier for him to recognize, like, I need God, because like, there's no way this, this is going to happen without God's help. But today, unfortunately, you know, we live, we work nine to fives, and we get, you know, some, some of us work nine to fives, some of us work 24 sevens, whatever, and 24 sixes, and if you're a rabbi, 24 sevens, whatever it is, right? So different people work different hours. But the bottom line is, <clears throat> excuse me, that we have to be able to recognize that every paycheck you get, every paycheck you get, every dividend you get, every income you get from the U.S., you know, Social Security, those are all God sending you money through many different intermediaries. We have to recognize, though, it's all from him, and we have to recognize that and be incredibly kind and incredibly generous with him, because he ultimately, to me is, this, is the gold, to me is the silver, says the Lord, to me is the apple trees, to me is the grapevines, to me is everything. So we have to always just, it's so, it's so important for us. Every time you work hard, you make a paycheck, you bring it home, you say, thank you, God. It's like, yes, because you did work hard, but who gave you the legs, right? Let's say you did a, a full shift as an Uber driver, you know, I don't know. And you made $400, whatever. I, I have no idea how it works with Uber, but let's say you make $400. Who gave you the legs? Who put the fuel in the ground so your car could go? I mean, who put all this stuff in place? And I'm not denigrating anybody. We all are supposed to do our work. We have to do our work. That's the way God set up the world. But at the end of the day, let's recognize that no matter what we do, no matter how we make our money, somehow God has set it up that we should be able to have that bounty and that success and that wealth. And we should recognize it with humility and kindness and giving back. That is idea number one. Thank you.
Now we move to idea number two. <clears throat> there is a song um, by a singer-songwriter named Phil Collins, who used to be part of a band called Genesis. And uh, he put out a song called In the Air. Um, and for many, many years, there's big rumors about this about this song, right? The rumor is, first of all, there's rumors that he's an anti-Semite. He may be. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to dispel, disband that notion. I know for many years, people walked around saying that Tommy Hilfiger on Oprah Winfrey once said that if he knew that so many Jews and Blacks were going to buy his clothing, he never would have made it, which is a total fabrication. I literally remember pressure of people saying, oh, you're, you can't buy Tommy Hilfiger. He's an anti-Semite. People were like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, don't you know? He was on Oprah and he said if he would have known so many Jews would no, it's total fabrication, total urban legend. Here's another urban legend. So there's a song in the air tonight, you know, da -da -da -da, calling in the air tonight, oh Lord. Anyway, the, 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 the urban legend about this song is that Phil Collins one time saw somebody drowning and there was somebody right near that person who could have saved them and they just stood by and let it go. And years later, Phil Collins wrote this song and he tracked down the guy with the private investigator and he invited him to come to the concert and he put him in the front row. And then right when he was about to sing the song, he put the spotlight on him and he said, this is the story. You know, this guy stood there while somebody else was drowning because one of the lyrics in the song is if you were drowning, I wouldn't lend a hand. Right. So like there's there's and he puts the spotlight on him and the whole people jumped on the guy who knows what. Absolute urban legend, 100% not true. But it's so much of an urban legend that other songs have been written referring to the guy not saving the guy in the, in the Phil Collins song in the air. That's how crazy it is. It's like one of these urban legends. Now, by Jewish law, no, not, not by Jewish law, by American law, let's imagine I'm walking down the street. You know, walking down the street. And I hear, help, help, I'm drowning. And sure enough, I uh, turn around the corner. I'm standing on the sidewalk. I'm staying on public property. And there is a guy in his backyard and he's drowning in his pool. And he's like, help, help, I'm drowning. Just throw me the rope. The rope is right there. Throw, throw, me, throw me the rope. And instead of throwing him the rope, let's say I grew up in the 21st century. So my first thought is, oh my gosh, this guy is drowning. Not let me save him. Let me record this for TikTok, right? Let me get this for Instagram. So I quickly take out my phone. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy is drowning. Oh, ooh, look at him. He's, no, for real, he's drowning, he's drowning. I'm taking the video. The guy drowns. I post it to my Facebook or to my stat, whatever, my Instagram, my TikTok, whatever it is. Is that illegal? Did I commit any crime in America? Nope. The answer is absolutely not. There's not a single crime. There's not a single crime that I committed. I may be a rotten man. I may be a horrible man, but I did not commit any crime. There's no crime. There's no law in America that compels me to save somebody who's drowning. Now, the same cannot be said for the Torah law. The Torah law in this week's parsha very clearly says, in Leviticus 19.16, in Vayikra, Parak Yudtes, Pasuk, Tes Vav, Lo Selech Rachil Ba'amecha, you shall not tattle tales, you shall not bring tales from one to another person in your nation. Lo Sa'amod Aldam Reecha, Ani Hashem, you shall not stand idly by your brother's blood, I am the Lord your God. I know if you saw, even if you see somebody drowning and you're like, I don't know, I'm uncomfortable. And you quickly walk away. God's like, I'm God. <laughs> I know that you saw that. Don't tell me you didn't see that person drowning. Now that could refer, refer to regular drowning, like physical drowning, right? That's obviously what the actual mitzvah is. If you see somebody in danger, if you see a car hurtling down the road and there's a baby in the way, you have a, an absolute requirement to run into the street and scoop up the baby. By American law, you don't. By Torah law, you absolutely do. You cannot stand idly by your brother's blood. Which, by the way, just brings up really uncomfortable 
conversations because in America, during the Holocaust, right, Jews were dying. Jews were dying by the millions, right? And there were people who were concerned about this and who did everything they could to stop it. And there were people who did nothing about it. There were people who did nothing about it. There was, uh, I can't give you the names of some of these organizations, but there were Jewish organizations that were busy in the middle of the Holocaust raising money to build a beautiful library. They were raising millions and millions of dollars to build a beautiful library when in those days for a hundred dollars, you could buy a Jewish person's life, right? There was all kinds of activists who were going to, Israel, to, going to going into Europe and actively negotiating, saving lives, smuggling people out. Literally, it cost about $100 to buy a Jewish life. And many people said, it's just not our concern right now. Could you imagine that? The guilt, the blood that's on their hands. There is a, um, a cigar company. I don't even know if it's around anymore. But it was, uh, you know, cigars come in different sizes. You have a Robusto, you have a uh a Toro, you've got a Churchill, got a Lonsdale, they come in different sizes, right? So this particular company on the inside of every box, on the inside of every box, they would have a story and each size had a, a story about a different hero of the, of, the, of the cigar producer. The cigar manufacturer was a man named Lou Rothman who owned a tremendous amount of retail cigar outlets and uh, he had a big, a massive um, like catalog business for selling cigars. He was a wild, hilarious, you know, uh, guy. And he made a set of cigars to talk about various heroes in his life. And on the inside of one of the shapes of the cigars, I don't remember what shape it was. He wrote the following. He wrote that he worked when he first started in the tobacco business, he worked in a guy's like cigar shop. And he said, this man was from the former Soviet Union uh, he, he was actually from the Soviet Union when it was called the Soviet Union. And he said, the man did pretty well. He was married. He had a wife. They didn't have any children, unfortunately. And he said, every day this guy would come in and eat like, he would eat like lunch, like in a brown paper bag. And he like spent no money on luxuries, you know? And Lou used to bug him all the time. Like, hey, why don't you just live a little, man? You're doing well. You've got a successful cigar shop. You're making good money. Live a little, man. Go on vacation. You know, uh, you sit here, you bring in this little, uh, this little wrapped sandwich every day from home. You know, you could, you could go to a restaurant for lunch from time to time. Have a good time. And he used to bug him all the time. They'd say, whatever, thanks. All right, no problem, Lou. Yeah, you go do that. Anyway, at one point, he kept bothering Lou. So Lou kept bothering him so much, he finally says, come here. And he takes him to the back office, and he shows him, like, a special lockbox that he had. And in the lockbox was, was a bunch of cash. And he said, you see this money? Every time it gets to $5,000, I smuggle one Jew out of the Soviet Union. He says, who am I to eat at fancy restaurants when I could eat tuna fish from home and I could save another life? Now, again, that is, I mean, that is obviously, here's a man for years lived without any luxuries. I'm not saying... That's where you got to be. But there's unquestionably, there were people here in America during the Holocaust, while the Holocaust was going on, and Jews knew. Like Everyone likes to say, we, didn't, we had no idea. We had ideas. We knew there was extermination going on, despite however much the New York Times tried to suppress it, which, of course, after the war, they had to apologize for, because they actively, the New York Times, under the ownership of a Jew, was actively suppressing information about how horrible the Holocaust, the genocide of the Jews was in Europe. But there were other Jewish organizations. Again, I'm not going to name names over here. But they were literally build, busy building libraries, spending millions of dollars building libraries when they could buy, buy a Jew for $100. So here it says, You are not allowed to, by Torah law, stand idly by while your, your, your fellow is dying. It can apply on the most basic level to when someone's physically dying or at risk of dying because they're drowning and you can pull them out of the water because there's a kid in the street and there's a truck hurtling down the street that they can't see the kid. 
or when there's people in, in Germany who can be bought, if you just are willing to scratch together $100, how uncomfortable are you willing to be so that somebody else's life can be saved? And think about the people who did. Think about Rav Moshe Meir Weissmandel, who went back into the jaws of Europe again and again and again to rescue Jews, risking life and limb, and then came back to America and begged people, went from city to city begging people, saying, for $100, I could buy a Jew, please. And so many times he was met with indifference. I don't know how he kept his sanity. Because he would go back in, he would see, literally, he was saving lives for $100. Of course, $100 today is a lot more than it was, meaning $100 then was a lot more. But let's say someone told you I could save a Jewish life for $5,000. How much of your savings are you giving? It's, a, it's an uncomfortable question for us to think about. Like, let's say a guy came to me today right now and said, hey, listen, there are Jews at risk in Yemen or whatever it is, or there's a few Jews left and they're at risk. We could save them for $10,000. What am I doing? Am I, am I giving them 10,000? Am I scratching together? Am I emptying my retirement accounts? Like, what am I doing? These are uncomfortable questions and I would have to actually ask a rabbi, but something to think about. But anyway, the next Pasuk says, Do not hate your brother in, his, in your heart. You shall reprove your friend, but incur no guilt because of him. The Torah says, just like when you see somebody drowning, you have an obligation to save him. So too, if you see somebody drowning morally, you have an obligation to save him. If you see a friend of yours who's acting in a way that's not okay, you are not allowed to sit idly by. Just like you would save his physical life if it was in danger, if he was drowning, so too you have to save his spiritual life. Now, there's a lot of laws about this. Most people, if they see their friend doing something immoral, they just keep quiet because they're afraid. If I say anything to him, he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna lash out at me. I'm, I may lose a friend. So a lot of times we just keep our mouths shut. It's, not, it's none of my business. What he does on his own time is none of my business. No, 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 no. That's not true. Depends how much you love him. Depends how much you love him. Now, of course, there are people who you can't save. You try, you say something, you mention something to them, and they yell at you, right? And at a certain point, there's a certain concept called it's better not to say something that won't be heard than to say something that will be heard. Meaning there's a, there's a concept that if, if you try to rebuke somebody and he's going to end up just lashing out and cursing you out and doing things that are even worse, then, then you shouldn't. It's a very delicate thing, but there definitely should not be a thing, well, it's none of my business. Is it none of your business if you see your friend drowning physically? And in Judaism, we take your spiritual life even more seriously than your physical life because your spiritual life is going to determine your eternity. If a person dies, they drown in this world, okay, fine. They go to the next world and they have a great place. But if a person's acting in an immoral way, they're destroying all of their eternity. And if you really cared about this person, you should be speaking up. When the Mishnah says you got to have a chaver tov, right? The Mishnah says in Perkei Avos that we need to have a chaver tov. We need to have a good friend. What does that mean, a good friend? Acquire for yourself a friend. It's a friend that will give you musr, a friend that will keep you in check, a friend that will say to you, buddy, the way you're talking to your wife, it's not appropriate. That's an uncomfortable conversation to have. I've had those conversations. I've seen people who the way they talk to their wives, not appropriate with anger, with dismissiveness. I've had to say to them, again, these are not people that I'm the rabbi necessarily even. It's, it's weird. It's uncomfortable. But you got to have those conversations if you care about the person. Now, let me tell you a beautiful idea that the Shalah HaKadosh, Rabbi Shaya Horowitz, who lived in 1564 to 1630, was born in Prague, died in Safas, one of the great Kabbalists. The Shalah says there's an incredible pasuk that tells you how to give somebody musr, how to give somebody reproach, how to rebuke somebody in a way that will actually make him listen. There's a pasuk in Proverbs, there's a verse in Proverbs 9, 8, parak tes, pasuk ches. Al tochach leitz pen yisna'echa. Do not rebuke a scoffer, for he will hate you. Hochach lechacham v'yavecha, but reprove a wise man and he will love you. Right? So on the, on the base level, 
what it seems to be saying is don't waste your time giving rebuke to a like a bad person, a scoffer, an arrogant fool, because then he's going to hate you for it. So you might as well just save your, 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 your words. But you have somebody who's a wise person, who's a good person, then you should give him because he'll love being corrected. He'll appreciate being corrected. He'll appreciate that you cared enough to actually correct him. Says the Shalah. Ah. Says the Shalah, if you rebuke somebody by calling him a lace. If you say to the guy, you're such a scoffer. You're so arrogant. You're so this. You know what's going to happen? He's going to hate you. But if you rebuke him by saying, you're such a wise man. You're so honorable. You're so respected. Let's say a guy's talking in the middle of shoal, right? So one thing you can come over with, what's wrong with you, man? Why do you keep talking in shoal? You're such a loser. Like, you don't get it? This is a place where we're trying to pray, and you're sitting here talking, talking, talking. What's wrong with you? Yeah, that never is going to go over well. But if you come to him and you say, wow, Yankel, I just want you to know, it's like amazing. You're such a powerful force in our show. Like people really look up to you. People really look up to you in our show. Like you're really, you're like one of the influential guys. You're one of the cool guys. People really look up, look up to you. And I was just noticing that sometimes if you're talking in the middle of show, it might also influence other people because they really look up to you so much. And you're such a, you're, you're, you're a good man. You're, you love Hashem. You love davening. So I just was noticing maybe if you could calm down on that a little bit, it would be great because it would be good for you, it'd be good for everybody in the show because you're such a leader here. That guy's going to love you because you're recognizing him to be a chacham, a wise person. You're saying the right things. Most often when it comes to rebuke and reproach, it's not about what you say, it's about how you say it. The Torah says, if you see your friend morally drowning, you have an obligation to step up and say something. But think very carefully about how you say it. Don't heap sin upon him. Don't make him out to be a horrible human being because he's not going to listen to you. Reprove him as a wise man and he's going to love you for it. Okay, that is idea number two. Idea number three, I heard this in a shear from Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson yesterday. I had a long car ride yesterday. And I heard this and I said, wow. Wow, wow, I got to share it with you. So I'm just telling you where I heard it from, and I want to share it with you. The second of this week's two parshios, again, it's Achremos Kedoshim. The second of this week's two parshios is Kedoshim, and it starts with the following verse. Hashem Hashem spoke to, the, to Moshe saying, Speak to the entire congregation of the Jewish people of Amartalem and say to them, Kedoshim to you, be holy. For I, Hashem, your God, am holy. Right? So first of all, the obvious question is, it's like saying, imagine uh, Michael Jordan says, Laby, I want you to dunk that basketball because I'm Michael Jordan. I can dunk that basketball. Right? I'm Michael Jordan. I can dunk the basketball. So Laby, you should dunk it too. Right? Kadoshim to you, be a dunker, because I, Michael Jordan, I'm a dunker, so you should be a dunker too. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're Michael Jordan. I'm Lady Burnham. It doesn't work like that. But no, the idea is that I am Hashem and I am holy and I put my soul into you, right? I blew into you a godly spirit. Therefore, by definition of me being holy, you can be holy too. But the Medrash says a fascinating statement. The Medrash Rabbah says, Kedoshim to you. You should be holy. You might think that you should be as holy as I. Says the verse, no, I'm holy. My holiness is way above your holiness, right? Meaning Hashem saying, be holy. You think like me? No, I'm like super holy, but you still can be. You know, I'm ultra mega holy. You can be super holy. Okay? Now that's the simple way of explaining it, which makes a lot of sense. Of course, I can't be like God. Hashem is saying, I want you to be holy. And again, you might think because you have a little bit of me inside of you, that you could be as holy as I, comes along the Torah and says, no, I'm higher than you. But the Hasidic masters, 
many of the Hasidic masters, they actually, they, they translate this medrash in a way that is, is wild. It's wild. And it's, 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 it's so crazy. It's so the opposite. Like the, Lit, the, the Litfish thought, the Lithuanian Torah thought is, you should be holy. You think you can be holy like me? What are you, crazy? I'm holy, holy. But listen to how, the, I, I'll read to you a few different quotes. The Ma'ar Enayim. The Ma'ar Enayim was Rabbi Nachum Nachum of Chernobyl. Rabbi Nachum of, of, of Chernobyl. He was the scion of many Hasidic dynasties that are still around today. He's the pro- progenitor of Skver, Racham Strifka, Talner, Trisk. There's a lot of Tversky families right now. The, 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 the great Tversky family that leads the Milwaukee community. They're all descendants of the Chernobler uh, Rebbe, the Rav Nachum of Chernobyl. And he wrote a sefer called the Ma'aranayim. And he says like this, Kedoshim to you, you should be holy. First of all, he says something fascinating. He says, we think of this as a commandment. It's saying, Kedoshim to you, you should be holy. But in Hebrew, the word to you can mean you should be or you will be. He says, Kedoshim to you, you will be holy. Hashem wants you to know, every Jew will be holy. We may do some unholy things in our lives, but eventually we're all going to go through the cleansing process and we all will be holy eventually. You will be holy, God is saying, because I am holy. And you have a little bit of me in you, and therefore a fraction of infinity is infinity. So you will be holy. But even more, he says like this, he quotes the Medrash. Yachal Kamoni, you might think it's like me. That's one way of reading it. Says him, no, benichuseh. It means Yachal Kamoni. You could even be like me. Amazing. You will be able to build worlds just like me. I, Hashem, built worlds. You will be able to build worlds just like me. Through your own volition, through your own energy, you will be able to build worlds. You'll be able to build people. You'll be able to build cities and institutions. You could be holy like me, says Hashem. Why? My holiness up there, my holiness up there is from your holiness. We see in so many places that Hashem, so to speak, now again, there's many levels of Hashem. I need to preface this. There are many levels of Hashem. There are certain levels of Hashem that are so high and so lofty that we can't even comprehend them, which is why in a lot of the more Kabbalistic things, they call Hashem Ein Sof, the infinite one. So there's no question about there. There are infinite levels of God that are infinitely beyond our comprehension. But on the level that we can comprehend, God many times ties his fate to us the Ata Kadosh Yoshev Tilos Yisrael, you Hashem are holy, riding on the praises of the Jewish people, as if, so to speak, Hashem says, My ability to ride on high comes from you. I'm sitting on you, I'm riding on your merits. And there's so many sources like this where Hashem goes up, Hashem Moshe Rabbeinu goes up to heaven, Hashem says, you're supposed to help me out. Moshe's like, how can I help you? You're God. I'm a little finite being. Hashem says, you should have given me a blessing. As if our blessings, not as if, not meaning our blessings, help the Rebona Shalom. Now again, there are levels of the Rebona Shalom that are so high and lofty that we can't comprehend. But the levels that Hashem chose to display to us, the ones that he chose to display to us in the Torah again and again and again and again, where he's unhappy when people are doing sins. Where Hashem says, when you are in pain, I am in pain. Kalani Mirashi, Kalani Mizrahi. Hashem is saying, I, Hashem, my holiness is tied up to you. So therefore, I'm telling you, you could be holy because my holiness is riding on you. Atem Eidainu'um Hashem. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. Which upon which the Sifri, the Medrash says, When you are my witnesses, I'm God. But when you are not my witnesses, I am not God. Now, of course, there are levels of God that are God beyond their comprehension. But Hashem is saying, I allow my entire reality in this world to be dependent on you. 
You, all of you, you amazing people, right? All you people who are on the Zoom, who are watching this on Torah anytime, wherever you are, Hashem is saying, I let my reality be tied up with you. You have the ability to give me my holiness in this world. My holiness in heaven is me from your holiness down here. And again and again, there's so many quotes over here. The Kedushas Levi, the Ma'ar V'Shemesh, the Beis Yaakov, they all say over the same things. They all say the same concept again and again and again in so many different words and so many different ways. But there's one last thing that I want to point out. It's found in the Imre Yehuda in the name of Rabbi Yisrael of Rizhin. Rabbi Yisrael of Rizhin was one of the great, great Hasidic masters for so many great dynasties. And he was, he had an incredible, beautiful, his court, this Hasidic court was like a real malchus, real, real like royalty. And listen to what he said. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Omar Aperush Kadosh Tiyu Yachal Kamoni. He says the explanation is, you should be holy like me. Hainu, which means Yachal Adam Leos Kamoni Kaviyachal. You could be like me, Kaviyachal. Kaviyachal means as if to say, there's a, there's a Gemara in Baba Basra that says the angels will call out in front of the righteous people, Kadosh, the same way we know what do the angels say before God, Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzavokos, which is what we say in our prayers, right? The, the angels call out to one another and say about God, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. The Gemara in Baba Basra, Ayin Hei Amud Beis, says that the Malachim will call out to before the Tzadikim and say Kadosh. Now, how do you get there? Yachal, so he reads, let, let, let's read, let's read this beautiful, he, the way he reads the Medrash. Again, the Medrash Rabbah on the Pasuk here says, Kadoshim to you, Yachal Kamoni. You could even be as holy as me. How could that be? Again, Kaviyachal on some level. There's obviously levels of God that we can't comprehend. How do you get there? Talmud Lomarki Kadosh Ani. Rabbi Yisrael of Rizhin teaches that the word Talmud could also be Tilmod, which means learn. Tilmod lomar ki kadosh ani. Learn to say that I am holy. Learn to recognize your own holiness, because if you recognize a fraction of your own holiness, you wouldn't do half the things that you do. When you're tempted to do something wrong, say to yourself, but I'm holy, I'm holy, I can't. I can't do this, ki kadosh ani, because I am holy. How am I going to say those words? How am I going to watch that? How am I going to waste my time? Ki kadoshani, I am holy. I've got a job in this world. God is resting upon me. The more you say ki kadoshani, the more you say that you're holy, the more you recognize your own holiness, the more you will not mess up. It says the Rabbi Yisrael of Rishon, you want to know how you get to be so holy that it's like God, so to speak. You get that by saying all the time, Kikadoshani. Someone says, hey man, did you hear what's going on with the cones? They're getting divorced. Shani, please. I, I can't hear that. My ears are holy. I, I don't, I don't want to hear that. And there's a song playing on the radio and the words are depraved and today the music they put out, turn it up, Kikadoshani. I can't listen to that stuff. You know, Rabbi Kellerman, Rabbi, Rabbi Leib Kellerman, who's got a great relationship Baruch Hashem, with, with Detroit, We've been honored to, to be in his kolo on a lot of our trips in Israel. He tells over a story how he had a son. He had a son who they, he was a very special, very special boy. And, and they used to always call him Kadosh. Like his nickname was Holy One, you know, in his house. His nickname was Kadosh, right? And it's a whole long story. They basically went to Tel Aviv and they, they were taking a bus and, and this poor little kid had to go to the bathroom. Like he was, he was like in incredible pain. So, and, and they tried to get the bus driver to stop and they wouldn't, and they, he had to go, it was like ready up. There was traffic and the bus got delayed and there was no, you know, the, the poor kid is in excruciating pain. So as soon as they get to Tel Aviv, Rabbi Kalman tells one of his older sons, go find a place, go find a place. Just as soon as, as soon as the bus stops, you quickly run out, find a place for the bathroom, come back, report. And sure enough, he runs, he's like, okay, daddy, I found a place. It was a bar, there was a bar right near the, the bus stop. And he found the place. And his Rabbi Kellum was like, come, 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 let's go, let's go, let's go. And the kid who's in excruciating pain, who just wants to go to the bathroom more than anything else, 
he stops and he says, wait a second, what is that? That's a bar. I can't go in there. I'm Kadosh. I'm Kadosh. You want to know how you become Kadosh like the Rabboni Shalom? Recognize your holiness all the time. Recognize that the Rabboni Shalom resides inside of you. Ki Kadosh Ani, because I am holy. Say it all the time. Tilmo Lomar, teach yourself to say all the time. I am holy. 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 Teach yourself. Drill that into your head. Make that a mantra of your life. And indeed, you will act in a way that is so surprisingly lofty when you recognize your own loftiness. You guys are all amazing. You're awesome. Thank you so much for coming and for listening. Have a wonderful Shabbos Kodesh, because you are holy. Okay.